Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations about books, publishing, and of course, our annual prizes. Our guests include the finalists and winners of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, and organizers and book enthusiasts from across the province and territory. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Jonathan Manthorpe, author of Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation in Canada. Claws of the Panda was a finalist for the 2020 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. If you haven't read Claws of the Panda, prepare yourself for a book that will inform you about parts of Canada's foreign relations you likely had no idea about. Parts of Claws of the Panda read like something from a Soviet-era spy novel, while others reminded me of how little we know and understand about the Chinese Communist Party and China's history. As Jonathan mentions in our interview, even though he had an outline for this book in his mind for many years, the decision to write it was a challenge, because he knew of the risks that come with writing about China and the Chinese Communist Party. Jonathan Manthorpe is the author of three books on international relations, politics, and history. Over his 40-year career as a journalist, he has been the foreign correspondent in Asia, Africa, and Europe for Southam News, the European Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, and the National Political Reporter for the Globe and Mail. He's also undertaken special projects for the United Nations, the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, and the Canadian International Development Agency. Jonathan currently lives in Victoria. Jonathan starts this conversation with a reading from Claws of the Panda. I'm going to read you a a bit from the introduction from my uh, 2019 book, Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation in Canada. Canada's fascination with China surfaced in the 1880s, when this country began to send Christian missionaries across the Pacific. Then, as now, China appeared to be a vast market just waiting to gobble up what Canada had to sell. However, the belief that Chinese would rush to become Christians was just as much of an illusion as the conviction today that Chinese yearn to buy Canadian goods and services if they have the chance. Canadian missionaries, mostly from the Presbyterian, Methodist and Catholic churches, were spurred by not only the zeal of Christian evangelism, but also the notion of the gospel as a charter for social change. That belief that Canada could change China by the self-evident appeal of Canadian values remains deeply embedded even today. But events in China show this view to be delusional. A recent example was in November 2017, when Chinese officials rejected proposals by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that a bilateral free trade agreement include his progressive agenda for commercial relations. This would have committed the Chinese Communist Party to following Canadian standards on such things as labor laws, gender equality, and environmental standards. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, will never allow a foreign country to dictate its civic and human rights policies. Canada is never going to change China, neither by example nor by compelling arguments. Far more pertinent is the question 
is China changing Canada? Since before it came to power in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party has been establishing links through which it can influence Canadian political, commercial, media, and academic discourse to its own advantage. The construction of that network has grown and spread dramatically since diplomatic relations were established in 1970. The CCP now has the capacity to ensure its interests are voiced and can be dominant when matters of concern to Beijing are raised in Canada's parliament, its provincial legislatures and municipal council halls, its media and its lecture theatres. There is no question that the CCP's capacity to influence Canadian public discussion has grown with immigration from Hong Kong and China in the last 40 to 50 years. But it is crucially important to understand that the vast majority of the approximately 1.56 million immigrants from Greater China who make up about 4% of Canada's population are here to escape the, depred the depredations of the CCP. And it is because the CCP knows that among these 1.56 million people are many political dissidents working to change the politics of China, that the party is intent on maintaining an espionage network in Canada that keeps watch on these people and intimidates them when necessary. The major victim of the Chinese Communist Party's determination to influence public discourse in Canada are Canadians of Chinese heritage, or those from territories occupied or claimed by the CCP. But they are not the only victims. Canada as a whole is suffering from the imposition of the values of the CCP on this country's citizens and institutions. Corruption in all its forms now permeates many walks of life. Most of this is Canada's own fault. Canada has become a haven for laundered fortunes of CCP princelings and red aristocrats of privileged class in China whose status springs from family ties to the leadership of the CCP. This is because Canadian governments at all levels have not put checks in place to ensure that money coming into the country was acquired honestly and is in Canada to serve a law-abiding purpose. Inevitably, because of China's restrictions on the export of money, corruption, including the corruption of business partners in Canada, must be involved in the illegal movement of money into this country. Once corruption has taken hold in one aspect of public life, it swiftly moves to others. There are signs that the culture of corruption that travels with the CCP has infected many areas of Canadian life, including academic credentials, and the many regulatory and licensing requirements overseen by the municipal, provincial and federal governments. Canada is not alone in having these experiences flow from contact with the CCP. Similar things are happening in the United States, Europe and especially New Zealand and Australia. Indeed, the Australian experience of infiltration by the CCP is almost exactly the same as that of Canada. The difference is that Australian politicians, academics, media and the public have been a good deal louder and more pointed in their objections to the CCP's campaign. Why Canada hesitates to recognize these incursions is a troubling question. Is it because the CCP's agents of influence have been so effective that any discussion is deflected? There is some truth in that. The way the government of Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper 
was turned away from its original skeptical attitude towards contacts with China carries evidence of the potent pro-Beijing lobby deep-seated in Canadian political, business, and academic establishments. But the effectiveness of CCP intrusions into Canadian public life should not be overstated, certainly not to the point of seeing every public figure who speaks up for reasonable relations with China as Beijing's Manchurian candidate. This book is not a doomsday saga, far from it. As the story develops, what becomes apparent is that while the CCP has been successful in infiltrating and influencing some aspects of Canadian life, it has failed in others. What emerges from this war in the shadows is that the CCP is most sure-footed when operating within familiar Chinese cultures or among people from traditional vassal states. In contrast, the party and its operatives are often off balance when dealing with established democratic societies, including Canada, Australia, the United States, and the countries of Western Europe. They are most comfortable operating in Western democracies when they find people who can be charmed or suborned. And it is never hard to find people whom the old Soviet communists used to call useful idiots. Canada has offered up to the CCP a steady stream of useful idiots, including political party and government leaders, rank and file politicians, naive and hubristic academics, greedy and gullible business people, and evil, even some parochial and inexperienced journalists. Many of these people justify their cupidity by telling themselves that more contact with the CCP will expose the party to the virtues of Canadian values. Once party members have seen the benefits of the freedoms and rights associated with liberal democracy, they will be eager to launch Canada on the road to reform. But that, as the CCP and its leader Xi Jinping make clear in every word and deed, is not going to happen while they are in power. One of my first questions for you is, and you touch on this a bit in your um, acknowledgements, but how did your fascination with this subject matter begin? It's a very long story. I mean, when I think back, I mean, people have asked me, you know, but when did you start on this book? It actually, I first started gathering information and, and seeing the outlines of it back in the 80, in the 1970s when I was reporting on um, Ontario politics for the Globe and Mail. It was in the early uh, 1970s when Canada extended diplomatic relations with China with the People's Republic of China, it then became a bit of a go-between between between the United States and China as as, uh, the uh, administration of Richard Nixon began to put out feelers to see uh, if they could arrange a similar deal. Because I was covering politics for the Globe and Mail, I picked up snippets about what was happening through uh, through Canadian sources. And so that was the, the beginning of it. But it really, I think, began to come together when I was as a foreign correspondent for Southern News. I was posted to Beijing, uh, or to, I'm sorry, to Hong Kong uh, in 1993 to cover the handover of Hong Kong back to uh, uh, Chinese uh, sovereignty in 1997. And it was there I began to see the reality of, of Canada's relationship with the People's Republic of China at that time. I, uh, I traveled widely in uh, China. I saw a lot of Canadian businesses on the ground. I saw the, 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 the difficulties that they were having. Um, uh, I saw how uh, 
the um, the promise of Canadian special re relationship with uh, with China or the, the special relationship that many Canadians dreamed of was not a reality. It, didn't, it was not a reality in business. It wasn't a reality in politics. It wasn't a reality in diplomacy. You know, for example, we spent about a billion dollars of Canadian taxpayers' money um, on a program to try to uh, uh, teach or expose uh, Chinese lawyers and judges to the rule of law and an independent judiciary. I mean, it was a total waste. What has happened is that those lawyers who did cotton on to our notions of the rule of law, and now many of them are in prison because they tried to defend people whom the Chinese Communist Party felt were dissidents and wanted to put away. And um, uh, one of the easiest ways to do that was to uh, find ways of, of drumming up charges against their lawyers. And so many of those people that we spent money on trying to, to uh, change the course of, uh, of, uh, of Chinese civil society are in prison. Similarly, the, um, you know, the, the uh, while business between Canada and China has grown dramatically since the first Team Canada visit that was uh, led by uh, then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien in 1994 to China with about four or 500 Canadian businessmen and I think most of the provincial premiers. Yes, uh, business between Canada and China has, has, has expanded dramatically. It's now about $90 billion a year. But two thirds of that is stuff we import from, from China. It's mostly household appliances of one sort or another. What we sell to China has not changed. It's still what it was back in 1960 when um, uh, John Diefenbaker really began the trade with China by lending the Chinese money to buy Canadian wheat and uh, other grains. That's when it started. And Alvin Hamilton, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the agriculture minister of the time, became a huge hero in, in China. Um, Chou Enlai, the then premier of China, told Alvin Hamilton that he had overtaken Norman Bethune as the great Canadian in the eyes of, uh, of China. Um, and Alvin Hamilton went on to become one of the greatest sort of agents of influence for the Chinese Communist Party in North America. So, you know, all these things came together really, I think, from my time in Hong Kong, my five years in Hong Kong. Um, and then when I came back to Canada in, in 1998, 99, or 98, and of course met up with many uh, old friends from Hong Kong who had moved to Canada um, uh, in, while I was there or before and who I'd seen in Hong Kong. I then was able to bring, I guess, a slightly different perspective on what was happening here as well. So, uh, it, but it really came out of my five years in Hong Kong. Yeah. Was it challenging to, with all that experience? And as you said, like the kind of the shape of the book beginning so long ago, was mm. it challenging for you to decide what went in the book and what maybe went in another book or or was left behind because you cover so much material from you know brief snippets of the history of china to you know espionage and every everything in between was that a challenge for you the whole book was a challenge um for reasons well, very personal reasons in a lot of ways once i saw that i got the book once i saw what it contained and uh, and what it said I really wondered whether I should write it. I was very, very concerned that um, it would be misused by people to 
denigrate and attack Canadians of Chinese heritage. I was I was really worried about that. And also I was concerned because what we think of as the Canadian Chinese community is not a, a monolithic community at all. It's made up of not only 1.5 million individuals, it's also made up of people who come from enormously different heritages, both political and cultural, depending on when they, you know, what period in history they came here, why they came. So it's 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 not a monolithic body, but so there are there are frictions within those communities sometimes as well. And I was I was really concerned about that, and so I talked to many of my friends uh, who are of Chinese heritage, and all of them said, "No, Jonathan, you've got to write it. It's, it's important. We uh, you know, we are under attack every day by the Chinese Communist Party." Um, and you should write it. But I was also concerned, of course, that uh, I would become a target, as is often the case in these sort of situations, of accusations of racism. And that concerned me also very much because it's been used by the Chinese Communist Party on many, many occasions when uh, it is criticized by people of non-Chinese heritage and even sometimes with people of Chinese heritage. And so I, I set myself a few rules as I sat down to write it. One, I made it clear, and I think I did it sort of explicitly at the very beginning of the book, that the Chinese Communist Party is not the Chinese people, and the People's Republic of China is not China. And I, I held to that line all the way through because A, it's correct, and B, I think it was very important to stress what I was talking about were the activities of a foreign political party at a certain point in its history. This is not a book about ethnicity. It's a book about the activities of one political party, foreign political party. The other thing I did, again, as a piece of self-protection, I guess, was to write the book almost exclusively from the public record. There are a few allusions no more than half a dozen of them, where I don't identify the source for one reason or another. But by and large, almost exclusively, the book is from the public record. Everything that I've written in there, you can find. You can find the source very easily. And I thought that was important because I I didn't want to write a diatribe. I didn't want to write a rant. This was, was meant to be a cool, calm, just setting out of what has happened over the last 70, 80 years. And to say, look, here is the evidence. Here is what was said by so-and-so at this time. Here's what somebody else said at another time. And here is the picture that all this paints. So yeah, it was, it was, it was not an easy, once I got through those, those sort of essential talking to myself about how to do it and what, and what to do, it, it fell together quite in quite a straightforward way. But I did have a lot of trouble with those early questions that I had to ask myself in the course of encounter writing. I think something that I found so fascinating about the book was that it really reminded me how how little we understand about China as a country, as a, as the political parties of China, um, its history, and I mean, I I took a, a 
a Chinese politics class a million years ago in my political science uh, degree. But I think that was something that really came back to me as I was reading the book, because as you mentioned, the racism, and I think people are very conscious of that these days and how we talk about Chinese Canadians. But I think it really pointed to the fact that we don't, we really don't have a clear picture of this place that is China. And I was just curious how, how what you thought of that and, and how do we address that in Canada so that we can speak to what the CCP is doing as separate from the, the Chinese Canadians and the Chinese people that are still in China, of course. Yeah. I mean, you're quite right, Megan. I mean, it, it's, and of course, you know, things are changing so fast, both within China, uh, though not so much, unfortunately, within the Chinese Communist Party. It's a real problem. And I think that you know, one of the things we have to do is regard that community of, of, of Canadians of Chinese heritage. And of course, you know, now a huge number of Canadians who are not necessarily of Chinese heritage, but who have worked for many years in China or in Hong Kong or in Asia. I mean, we have a very substantial human resource of people who are familiar with, with working there and with living there and with understanding the culture. And I think we need to use that more effectively, perhaps, than we do. And we need to be subtle in our judgments about uh, you know, the differences between ordinary Chinese people and, and the Chinese Communist Party. I think, um, to a degree, that has become easier now that the the Communist Party is becoming more overt, the regime is becoming more overt about what its intentions are, that it intends to be the, the global superpower. Uh, until really Xi Jinping came to power, until the, which was in 2012, uh, they, uh, successive Chinese leaders had been following the advice in the 1980s of Deng Xiaoping and have had, had sort of hidden their uh, ambition. They'd um, gone to great lengths to try to um, to obfuscate and to try to uh, uh, cover up what their real intentions were. And they did that really until it became evident that People's Republic of China was an ep economic superpower, a military power, uh, a diplomatic power, and was going to become, was well on the way to supplanting the United States as the global superpower, something which they, they, they expect their economy to be clearly larger than the, that of the US by the middle of, of this decade, and they expect to be a clear global superpower by the middle of the century. So they, they've, they've sort of removed the camouflage that they wore for, for many years. So that has made it simpler. But it's also, of course, made it more challenging because we are now dealing with a superpower and a superpower that really is not open in many uh, to debate on on several of the central issues that we face like the role of international institutions like the united nations like the world health organization and so on and so forth which is not open to discussing its territorial claims and ambitions most of which have absolutely no um legal historical or political uh, veracity at all like they, they are just the creations really of chinese um uh, nationalist uh, scholars uh, about a hundred years ago. The, the claims to Tibet, to Xinjiang, to, to Taiwan, utter nonsense. There's no, oh, and the South China Sea. There, there's no legal um, or historical uh, evidence behind them at all. But 
you, know, you cannot get um, China to budge on these things. And so these, uh, these are going to be problems. Uh, but but you know, we, we do have that huge resource of, of many people within Canada who, uh, who understand Chinese history, culture, and, and understand how the Chinese Communist Party works. And we, we should be paying more attention to them. I think another part that I found surprising, and maybe it's just my my lack of knowledge, but um, was some parts of this read like a spy novel, like, you know, it read like James Bond or something out of the Cold War era, but it's not. This is very current uh, stuff. And so I wondered if you if you think that maybe because we do have a, an association with spies and espionage that when we talk about this uh, in terms of like current affairs as this is happening in Canada uh if people laugh it off because it does seem almost like you know something for a movie plot yeah um i mean see one of the things that i think and i hope will come out still hope will come out of the book is that the the, the canadian powers that be will take far more seriously uh, the espionage activities of the Chinese Communist Party in Canada. And it's at many, many levels. I, look, I mean, I know and I've, many of the reports are, are, are in the, or referred to in the book. Canadian Security Intelligence Service, our, our uh, body uh, which is there to protect uh, the security of, of Canada, they are well aware of what's going on here. Their problem for 20, 30 years has been to get our political leaders, particularly the federal government, to understand and react. Until now, and really I think until the Huawei affair, and we'll, I'll come back to that because I think the Huawei affair is a, a hugely important turning point. Until the Huawei affair, most political leaders in Ottawa when CSIS put before them evidence of Chinese Communist Party espionage activities here and evidence of agents of Beijing intimidating or otherwise uh, leaning on Canadians. The, the Ottawa politicians tended to look at um, the balance and decide that actually it was more advantageous to Canada to uh, stick with, with China and not make a fuss. I think the Huawei affair changed all that for uh, several very important reasons. But what it, what it showed was that uh, we share no values with Beijing, no civic values. Now, when uh, you have a diplomatic problem, um, Canada was merely following uh, the dictates of its treaty, its extradition treaty with the United States. And, detained Meng Wanzhou, who was wanted by the uh, US Justice Department on fraud and uh, uh, on fraud and other charges. Uh, Canada, Canada abided by its responsibility under that treaty. But the first reaction in Beijing was to take hostage the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spoke. Now, all this happened just as, the, as my book came out. And although I, I got a bit about the Huawei affair in just before uh, we had to, to rush the press, but this, I think, has changed Canadian public opinion. Uh, the, um, uh, the Canadian public skepticism about the Chinese Communist Party and the Beijing regime now is very, very strong. And it's really come out of the Huawei affair, come out of the kidnapping of the two Michaels. And my hope is 
that that this will prompt force uh, our political leaders and and leaders in business and in academia and elsewhere to really re-examine what is possible in our relationship with with Beijing. We have to have a relationship with Beijing. We cannot. It's too big and it's too important and, and we can't avoid it. But I think what the Huawei affair has shown us is that we need a far more simple transactional relationship. And even that, you know, is a problem. Though we've just, we're just seeing now um, the story of the attempt early in the, in the COVID-19 pandemic, the Ottawa government uh, wanted to do make a partnership with a Chinese company to produce vaccines. And that was the main thrust of Ottawa's response to getting a vaccines to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we go down that route. And then shortly afterwards, Beijing announces that they're ending the, uh, the partnership. And this leaves Ottawa scrambling around, now well behind all other countries, to try and do deals with other producers of vaccines. So I'm not sure how much Ottawa has learned. I mean, what, what the, the vaccine story says to me is that even a simple transactional relationship with Beijing is very problematic at this time. They're going to see any um, link with Canada as an opportunity to uh, push their own, uh, their own case. I mean, I suspect that, um, that we, are, we are paying in our lack of vaccines, again, for having detained Meng Wanzhou. I mean, it has the same smell as the kidnapping of, of the two Michaels and the fanciful embargoes on the importation of Canadian canola and the Canadian pork. I mean, this looks just like another either piece of revenge or an attempt to, to exert pressure on Ottawa to free Meng Wanzhou. So I, I hope, I hope that, uh, that this is a broad response or the, the fallout from the Huawei affair is going to force Ottawa and the, and the, the Canadian establishment to rethink what is possible with, with China, and hopefully to put far more emphasis on uh, relationships in Asia with countries with whom we do share that. Uh, so for example, imagine if it hadn't been a, a senior executive from, from Huawei, but from one of the, the major Japanese or South Korean companies that we had detained under an extradition treaty. We wouldn't have had the same problem. There would have been tensions with, with Tokyo or with Seoul, but there is so much more to our relationship with, and so many more uh, commonalities in our relationship with Japan or South Korea that would have buffeted or, or protected the relationship against uh, a crisis. And we have with China because it's really only a trade relationship. This uh, the Huawei affair has has created the greatest crisis uh, in a in a probably any relationship we've had with any other country since perhaps India used Canadian reactors to make atomic weapons. Uh, but and it is a, it stems from the fact that we share very few um, civic or or, uh, or other uh, national values. Yeah, that was something I noted was just like how challenging it is to have a relationship 
with a country like China when, you know, our basic our basic language, you know, rule of law and democracy and those type of things. It's just like we don't even we don't even come close to agreeing on just basic things like that. That's right. No, and, and which is why I say, you know, we, we've huge mistake of the last 50 years now has been to make the relationship with China the core of our relationship with Asia. Um, you know, I remember I was uh, in the uh, political reporter for the Globe and Mail when Mitchell Sharps, uh, the then uh, Minister of External Affairs, Mitchell Sharps, 1972 uh, paper came out. Uh, uh, it's called always the third option paper. Which, um, which advocated diversifying Canadian trade and other relationships away from the domination by the United States. And it, um, it looked at expanding them with Europe and expanding them with Asia. And Asia was the third option. And, uh, and that was where the weight of the argument went. But you know, our third option, our, our, our development of relationships with Asia has really been with China. And that's been where all the emphasis has been. And and that's been the mistake, and it has left us in the situation where we are. That that um, you know, our principal partner in, uh, in we are at loggerheads now, and are going to be for a considerable many years to come. I think the way things look with our principal partner in Asia, and we need to really put some muscle behind developing ties with other like-minded countries. We have we have in front of us actually the agency for doing that, and that's the comprehensive and progressive trans-Pacific partnership, which is a very sophisticated trade deal between Canada and 11 other uh, Pacific Rim countries. This, uh, it's, it's 500 million people or more, um, and it has the capacity to be expanded. There are already several other countries who are not in at the moment who want to join the UK, Taiwan, several others. And this, I think, really has the potential for being a, a very sophisticated, uh, not only trade, but uh, political and security link uh, between Canada and Asia. But we can keep selling grain to, to China and buying um, third-rate appliances if we want to. But in terms of, a, of sophisticated relationships which go beyond um, the simple uh, trade, we need to look to other countries. And, and I really hope that we do that. And, and as I say, I think the, the C, what is called the CPTPP um, is, is the carriage. I know when you and I were emailing back and forth, we, we mentioned, uh, you know, that there, things have happened in the last year or year and a half that could probably be additional chapters in your book. And I was mm -hmm. curious um, if you had to revise and do another printing, what would you add based on what's happened in the last oh, year I, and a half? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's a fairly straightforward repertorial uh, task, isn't it? And uh, my publisher and I are talking about it. There's no, uh, there's no uh, decision yet. But yeah, no, I could write two chapters uh, probably um, uh, pretty quickly. Basically, the Huawei affair and the fallout from it, and what has happened in, in Canada-China relations uh, in the last uh, year, now nearly two years since the book came out. But also, of course, um, more broadly, um, Canada, uh, China, and the United States, and what has happened in in Asia. Um, 
China and Europe, where um, you know, there's uh, there's a good deal of, of resistance now in Europe to uh, doing free trade deals and so forth with China, and of course also other important uh, changes are that the uh, the much vaunted Belt and Road Initiative, which um, which Xi Jinping has promoted as a as a huge multi-trillion dollar um, infrastructure project linking China to Europe, the Middle East, uh, and uh, Central Asia, and Africa, and even via uh, seaways, Latin America, and so forth. But this has really slowed down now. It slowed down for two reasons. One, the, the recession that has accompanied the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also because many of the countries through which this, this huge uh, project of highways and railways and ports and airlines and so forth goes are realizing that actually that um, there is a very strong element of Chinese Communist Party imperialism. There's, there's been um, uh, few, several countries where they've, um, they've got uh, what is, what is uh, in, in called um, uh, well, they've, they've had ter terrible problems with the debts uh, that uh, the, uh, the loans from China to build some of these projects uh, turned out to be a good deal more expensive than they thought. And some of them have had to relinquish uh, assets within their own countries to uh, to China, but principally ports. There's one in, in Sri Lanka, which is now owned by China. Even half the port of Piraeus in, in Greece is now owned by uh, China because of um, of uh, the small print in their, in their loan agreements. Uh, several of the countries of Central Asia are less and less enthused about um, uh, allowing these huge infrastructure projects to go across their territory. So there's there's beginning to be a lot of, of, of backlash and all of that has, has really come to the surface in the last two years since the book came out and would be, uh, I think, part of, of, a, of, a, of a revised edition. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably one of those projects you could be forever writing. <laughs> well, yes. no, I'm sure. No, I, but I mean that's quite true. Although, you know, you get to a point where uh, where you need to sort of stand back and um, uh, and start again. I, I mean, I've written another book since, um, which is called "Restoring Democracy in an Age of Populists and Pestilence." And to a significant degree, that grew out of out of doors of the panda, uh, because the central issues of doors of the panda is how do you protect democracy from um, uh, an outside challenge by an authoritarian state? Uh, how do you protect democracy without abandoning some of the central precepts of your political philosophy, such as freedom of speech and freedom of association? Now, how do we deal with uh, organizations in Canada that have been taken over by surrogates of the Chinese Communist Party? How do we do that without abandoning our, our belief in freedom of association? It's very difficult. And, and that led me to uh, looking at the whole business of the future of democracy. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that... Um, uh, you, you can take one book and one story so far, but then you have to sort of dive down some of the other rabbit holes you've walked past and when you're in producing. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still looking at some of the other rabbit holes as well. 
Thanks so much to Jonathan for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. Now, if you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, including our recently announced storied series, which features discussions about books, publishing, and the creative process, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, including other upcoming events, follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing in Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Leslie Hertig, the Artistic Director of the Vancouver Writers' Festival. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.